Amos or Amaziah, Billy or Martin, coming up on Love Thy Neighbor. You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothman. Welcome back to another episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined by co-hosts Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. We want to say welcome to our new listeners. We got a nice bump over the last few weeks, and we want to thank our old listeners as well. Thank you for your loyalty, and thanks for sticking it out with us. Well, today we're going to be examining Niebuhr's final published article. 1969 and this and this article fellas has a nice bite to it it's like the spiked baseball bat of Niebuhr articles it's the wooden stake to the heart of vampire of Niebuhr articles it's called the king's chapel and the king's court Sabella recommended we read this leading up to the midterm elections a while back and boy did we ever Um, As his final publication, Niebuhr pulls out all the stops. He writes like a a crazy prophet. But also, we should say, later on in the show, we are thrilled to be joined by scholar Amos Young, uh, Dr. Amos Young, to discuss this article, and we're excited to see what he has to say about it. But until then, um, we're just going to be discussing it ourselves. So just to open it up a little bit, how did you guys respond to this? It's a quick read. Uh, what kind? I'm talking like emotions. What kind of emotions did it evoke for you when you read this? I think the first um, reaction I had was, I feel like I've made this criticism myself of religious leaders in America and politicians. This looks familiar. It looks very familiar. It was like, hmm, this seems a bit weird. Um, so that was probably the first thing that came to mind. How about you, Zach? I mean, it just made me think of our current kind of last 10 years of politics and how this could have been just emotionally be like wow this is sort of been nice if this had been around which it was around but if it had been more i don't know vocally the attitude of a lot of people i've encountered i tell you what emotionally for me i think is kind of capped off by that last paragraph man where he finally he spends this whole article not talking about dr king um and kind of critiquing the kind of religion or religious leader who cozies up to power and then at the end, he breaks it out, man, and and has some serious rhetorical teeth uh, when talking about Martin Luther King mm-hmm. and his death and uh, asked the question, and we'll get into the context of this question a little bit, asked the question if Martin Luther King would ever be invited mm-hmm. uh, to the East Room of the White House. Yeah. Uh, man, that really hit for me, and um, and it seemed like that's... Given the critique of Niebuhr that he kind of pulls his punches on race um, uh, in the mid to late years of his career, uh, that seems like that just that last paragraph seems like something that had been bottled up for a long time that he just had to release, hmm. you know, so it was a it was a beautiful thing, but we'll get into that. So uh, to to start this thing off, he gets into kind of religious, I, I think here's a quote, religious sanctity and political power represents a heady mixture for status quo conservatism. And 
uh, and Niebuhr brings Jefferson into the conversation. Je- Jefferson's letter, where he first refer- first brings out the separation between church and state, the wall between church and state. Um, so what did you guys take from uh, just this little section where he's talking about separation of church and state? I think he does, you know, the classic Niebuhr thing, and he does, <clears throat> it has a uh, kind of a good and bad, you know what I mean? Like he, he, he gives you both ways where it's had, you know, tremendous benefits in that it's allowed for, uh, or it's meshed well, or I guess you could say made possible the plurality within our, our culture. And then uh, what was the other thing he said? He said uh, plurality and um, you guys remember what the other thing was? Uh, yeah. He says it, it establishes like a sort of defense against status quo conservatism. Um, well, you know, the funny thing is he, he later on in the article when attacking um, J. Edgar Hoover um, and his sort of spying on Martin Luther King, he, he mentions that um, that what the issue is, is uh, with much of these conservatives and not just conservatives, but uh, religious leaders and political leaders coming together is a call to complacency and self-sufficiency. So um, I think if we're going to give a sort of exegesis on what status quo conservatism is, that's probably the key to understanding what Niebuhr is actually saying. What would you think, Cliff? Well, I think that uh, what Niebuhr wants to do here is he wants to say the separation of church and state is good for both the church and the state. Yeah. Um, the, the church isn't the church can actually speak when it's not trying to cozy up to power. Sure. Um, and the state isn't succumb to uh, the the traditions and uh, the conservatism of yeah. of the church, uh, but but what what it ultimately encourages is the quote prophetic radical aspect of religious life. When you mm-hmm. separate church and state, then the church can actually become a check on the government in a lot of ways i know that like the press is often called like the fourth check on government but in a lot of ways religion is the fourth check on government it's when you separate them then the the church is able to actually bring that prophetic witness and critique government yeah this is this is very much in line with what you're saying about uh neighbor's whole aim for prophetic religion is something that can stand outside of itself and uh, judge it give it some sort of critique and bear witness to it to some sort of higher values in of itself but let me ask you this so with the separation of church and state is the separation of church and state just a sort of blankets very limited utilities to hey we've got the exact same you know den- different denominations of the same religion here we just got to make sure we all get along well that's why we're going to have this or does it serve a, a, a different purpose a, a higher purpose then just make sure we all get along well. Kind of like what I was talking about earlier, for Niebuhr, the separation, what it offers the church is a prophetic voice. Yeah. It distinguishes it from the power that be mm-hmm. so that it actually can actually throw rocks at the power. So it can yeah. be outside of it enough uh, to, to give the government a much ne- yeah. needed critique from a, from a spiritual and social um, perspective. I mean, this is quite different from the Puritans in Massachusetts, which I mean, I think, the neighbor does kind of indirectly reference with Roger Williams, where the government is not involved in the Puritans and in, in the congregational churches, but they they expect the government to enforce their morality. So it's completely different. But in Niebuhr's vision, the church is 
completely separated from the government in order to be able to bear witness. Well, I think by virtue of being a prophet, there are expectations that you place on your government for justice yeah. and, and by extension morality, I mean, yeah. uh, to a certain degree. I don't know. Uh, so next up, uh, Niebuhr gets into this really important biblical distinction between the prophet Amos and this fella named Amaziah, which is a cool name. What's first of all, what's the difference between the two um, and what they're serving? And uh, I guess uh, explain kind of this conflict that they have between each other. So Amaziah is a part of the king's court. And so he's placating. And I mean, it's just the classic, like he's the prophet of the king. So he's going to he's going to. He's going to say what needs to be what he wants to be said, but he's threatened by the um, radicalism of Amos. Amos is a threat to the king's authority, and so he's a threat to the prophet um, because the prophets. This prophet is really meant to placate and uphold the rule of Jeroboam, uh, Amaziah is, and so he's drawing a distinction to like kind of our current. I mean, his current situation with uh, Richard Nixon and uh, Billy Graham being you know amaziah being like billy graham in this situation which is a pretty harsh critique actually and um, amaziah ends up doesn't he like condemn amos to like to judah yeah just kind of like con- condemning him down to the wilderness or something to you, you can prophesy down there but you're not allowed up here yeah he's a threat that's that that's the point right that's the that's really the point of neighbor's whole thing is that the prophet in the king's court is always going to see the one who is actually prophesying as a threat because he's in the king's court. And that proximity is dangerous. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's quite true of history to look back and, I mean, how often is there a prophet in the king's court in any culture, in any setting, where he can actually, you know, avoid placating power, you know? What's ironic he, is he he condemns him down there, but Niebuhr is kind of arguing that, that Amos is at his best when he's not in the king's court. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, yeah. It's funny because what Niebuhr eventually launches into is is what Zach did bring up is that sort of that comparison between Amaziah and Billy Graham. And Niebuhr has this really funny line, this very ironic and witty line where he says, it's really funny how an invitation to the East Wing of the White House well, all the critical faculties, anybody who participates. <laughs> yeah, I love that. that. We got a little bit ahead of ourselves there, but so let's talk Nixon's East Room. Yeah. So Niebuhr compares uh, Nixon's East Room and he starts having like ecumenical services yeah. in there. And these ecumenical services included basically just Jew, uh, Jews and Christians. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, those Christians who were in it were basically just evangelical, right? Um, so, you know, Niebuhr wasn't invited to this. Uh, but so to Niebuhr, Nixon's East Room became kind of a metaphor in this article for the King's Chapel and the King's Court, uh, where the prophetic voice dare not exist. Um, and he gives an example of a Jewish rabbi who he doesn't name, says that this guy forgets Amos and declared, and this is a quote, allegedly, I don't know where Niebuhr got this, if he just heard through the grapevine, this is what this guy said or what. But uh, this Jewish rabbi said in the East Room to Nixon, quote, I hope it is not presumptuous for me in the presence of the president of the United States to pray that future historians looking back on our generation may say that in a period of great trial and tribulation, the finger of God pointed to Richard Milhouse Nixon 
giving him the vision and wisdom to save the world and civilization and opening the way for our country to realize the good that the century offered mankind. I don't think you ever trust someone with a name Milhouse. <laughs> I, I'm just going to put that out there. But yeah, isn't that the little kid on uh, Simpsons? <laughs> anyway, go ahead. But uh, it's, it's you're right. We did kind of jump uh, jump a bit forward. But the next sentence literally is, "It is a wonderful. It is wonderful what a simple White House invitation will do to the dull the critical faculties, yeah. thereby confirming the fears of our founding fathers." That's such a good line. That's such yeah. a great line. So yeah, that's a very clear example of this guy just buttering up Nixon and yeah. just cozying religion right up next to. Mm-hmm. To, to power and it dulls yeah it dulls well, that prophetic witness and i think it's because like all of a sudden people come to this like thought that like once they're in power it's like they feel like they can endure like 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 their 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 legacy will endure they're they can finally bring about the end of history they can finally usurp all that you know has held them back and it's like well they don't realize that like yeah sure you're in power for now but like it, it's only a temporary thing and it's like it's almost like they let their guard down you know, and they don't become threatened by the, what they're doing themselves. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. So uh, next, uh, Niebuhr kind of brings out this quote, or, or maybe it's a kind of a sentiment of, of Billy Graham. And it's, uh, it's characterized by this, by the statement that all our problems are spiritual and must therefore have a spiritual solution. Mm-hmm. Um, and Niebuhr gets into what's it called? The AB... Uh, ABM, ABM, um, the ABM policy, which I know that Aaron and I did a little background on. um, And I don't think that probably either one of us are that uh, (laughs) educated on, you know, 1960s foreign policy to speak too intelligently about it. I wrote, I read a Wikipedia article, so I think I'm pretty, uh, uh, pretty good. Uh, Evidently Niebuhr wasn't too happy about it. He was really concerned about this type of thing, but he, he brought in uh, Graham's statement about all our problems are spiritual must therefore have uh, spiritual solutions and held it up to this and basically concluded well, he, he asked a rhetorical question. Is religion per se really a source of solution for any deeply spiritual problem? And he says, aren't basically aren't political methods important in the nuclear age as well? Like we yeah. can't just boil everything down to kind of the simple category yeah. of spiritualism. Yeah, I guess Graham's model of just baptizing everybody really wouldn't solve the nuclear race yeah tell me a little bit more about that because Niebuhr does go into critique that side of Graham a little bit yeah uh, of and this is actually a part of two of Niebuhr's critiques of the what he calls the Nixon Graham doctrine Mm -hmm. and Niebuhr says that there are basically two uh defects to this and the second one is the one we're just talking about where conversion of political persuasion cures men of all sin um, unpack this a little bit. How does like what what's what's Niebuhr's critique here? So for the second uh, one we're getting into, he Niebuhr is responding to Jim Crow in the United States and the sort of policies that are implemented. Con- conversely, for someone like Graham and then uh, Martin Luther King Jr., Graham is invited into this room of power and he's welcomed in whereas martin luther king the outsider somewhat you know compared to amos here 
he's met with suspicion. J. Edgar Hoover, his FBI, is investigating him to see if he's like a communist or something, right? Mm -hmm. um, but Graham's particular um, solution to like the race problem is that if a believer is baptized, then they will just become blind to all color issues and will treat everyone equally and with respect. And so, yeah, that, that's what Graham's problem is. And Niebuhr's basically, yeah, I, I don't actually think that's the case. Just by becoming Christians, we can kind of shed all of our uh, racism yeah. type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And we all of a sudden stop, like cease from being sinners or yeah. something like that. And this goes right back to what Sabella really succulently point out in his book um, on the introduction to Niebuhr is that, you know, way back in the, I think in the 30s, Niebuhr was already getting really hyped up about, you know, his German um, uh, an ancestors and German Americans just thinking about individual solutions to bigger problems like you just got to not drink a mm -hmm. bit more just smoke a bit less you know stop going to gambling or saloons more you know there are structural problems that need to be addressed with structural means yeah political problems need to be addressed with political means yeah. and another thing uh and this is the first of the two so that was the second we kind of um hopped ahead of this first one um, just examining the what he's calling the, the Nixon-Graham doctrine yeah. of religion's entry into the political sphere is basically just all problems are spiritual problems. We just need spiritual solutions then. is Niebuhr says this has kind of an unwitting uh, effect on the way that we understand politics and that policy is ultimately granted religious dimension and therefore religious affirmation. And we could also even say along with this religious condemnation uh, for certain political views. Uh, so is, Niebuhr seems to be suggesting that, you know, it's weird because in, in some places it does seem like Niebuhr does do that this already. He, he does kind of boil a lot of politics down into uh, these Christian terms and, and things like this. And maybe this is at the point in his life when he's regretting that. I don't know. But he does bring up a, a good point in saying we need another dimension here. We need kind of a buffer zone between religion and politics because we can't just reduce all political methods down to uh, religious language um, because this can too easily merge together to where now you can, what we're seeing today, you can condemn somebody because of their political affiliation right. um, or you can affirm somebody simply because their political affiliation, yeah. they are too close together. Yeah. Well, I thought just what he had to say about the, you know, being saved doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily the solution to all of our spiritual problems. And what he meant by that, I think is like, there's still a political, like the personal, like personal salvation of an individual doesn't always um, answer the question of how do we resolve these giant spiritual problems of politics, basically. Like we still have to take decisive action to lead in those situations. Yeah, that's right. That's a good point. Um, now, the final paragraph, and we're gonna get we're gonna get to Dr. Young here in a, here in a moment. Um, but the final paragraph, I want to spend a little bit of time on because this cuts, man. This is this is the part where he brings out that spike baseball bat. Okay, yeah. and it's it feels like Niebuhr has something that has been buried down, and he's just bringing it out. And keep in mind, this is his last paragraph. This is his last paragraph of not just this article, but his of his publishing career. 
It's crazy. Let's, yeah. let's think about this, okay? This is what I'm about to read, which is a crazy indictment uh, of the federal government for for its kind of condemnation of Martin Luther King. Um, this is this one's going to hurt. And he kind of contrasts uh, implicitly Graham in cozying up in the East Wing with Nixon and this whole Graham doctrine, the uh, Amaziah in the King's Court with the Amos in the streets, with the Martin Luther King in the streets. And this is what he says. It is unfortunate that he, Martin Luther King, it is unfortunate that Martin Luther King was murdered before he could be invited to that famous ecumenical congregation in the White House. But on second thought, the question arises, would he have been invited? Perhaps the FBI, which spied on him, had the same opinion of him as Amaziah had of Amos. Established religion, with or without legal sanction, is always cherry of criticisms, especially if it is relevant to public policy. Thus, J. Edgar Hoover and Amaziah are seen as quaintly different versions of the same vocation, high priests in the cult of complacency and self-sufficiency. I, I wonder, didn't didn't uh, Martin Luther King have a like commitment not to be in those situations? Like, didn't he have a commitment to keep himself separate from the halls of power? I think I, I read something about that or let's do a documentary. I can't remember exactly where it's That's possible. That. I mean, I know that he was next to LBJ as he signed the Civil Rights Act, but uh, that, I mean, that's that's one very clear distinction, I think, yeah. between Martin Luther King and somebody who is uh, cozying up is that, yes, Martin Luther King is there next to him, uh, next to the president as he's signing the Civil Rights Act. But I'll tell you, just uh, not two years later, he's at Riverside Church in New York condemning the Vietnam, yeah. um, what LBJ was overseeing. Uh, so Martin Luther King had that appropriate relationship with power where it can be used toward just ends but not be kind of hypnotized by its influence yeah and i think that you know that's something actually i kind of appreciate a lot about martin luther king is that he didn't um because i think once it's there's no way to do it without being wed to it you know i mean like there's no i don't think i know of anybody that's successfully been like an establishment uh, evangelist like Billy Graham and not then suffered some repercussions. You know, I think of like Franklin Graham and I think of like how he is kind of the outworking of that relationship and how his spirituality is so wed to one political agenda. And it's like, you can't unwed it even in the most adverse, terrible situation. Yeah, and say what you want about Billy Graham, but at least he at least he made it a point to, to visit uh, presidents of different political parties. He had a reputation for that, but his son doesn't have anything close to that. But that is a repercussion. That is a choice that he made also, is that he created that, you know what I mean, to some degree. I want to read this, the very last line. So I lied earlier. This is actually the, the very last line. So, the, so it's picking up on the uh, J. Edgar Hoover line. It says, thus J. Edgar Hoover and Amaziah are seen as quaintly different versions of the same vocation, high priests in the cult of complacency and self-sufficiency. And then the last line is this, perhaps those who accept invitations to preach in the White House should reflect on this for they stand in danger of joining the same company. That's an ominous warning from Niebuhr in his last words to the public. Mm -hmm. Very prophetic. Good.
All right. Any any other uh, comments? Well, let's let's talk to Amos. Wait, I got one. I got one question for you guys. Okay, this is this is part of the spooky series of of the October interviews. That was a wolf that just howled. Did you hear it? <laughs> All right. So I got one question for the three of us. The year is 1954. Niebuhr happens to be giving a lecture at Georgetown University when all of a sudden Cronkite comes on the airways and says, all residents of DC must stay where they are and barricade the doors. It has come to our attention that the zombie apocalypse is upon us. Niebuhr looks out the window and sees the zombies huddling up and gathering outside the building that he's in. Trying to break through the window, Niebuhr is peering out. Then all of a sudden, the Secret Service busts through the lecture hall and they grab Niebuhr and rush him to the Situation Room in the White House. Eisenhower comes in and sits down and says, Reini, we need you. How would Reinhold Niebuhr advise the President of the United States in the event of a zombie apocalypse? Oh my God. <laughs> and- <laughs> I, probably like you guys brought this upon yourself maybe <laughs> I'm out of here deuces yeah. <laughs> yeah. what would neighbor do that's an interesting question well there's going to be the whole question of are these people or not first of all <laughs> are the zombies human beings that's a good point so yeah. as, a, as a zombie's latching on to your uh trying to bite your neck off you're like are you a human being or not well we <laughs> neighbors trying to settle this before that happens okay, they're okay, in the situation yeah. room protected although they just got word hold on transmission coming in from secret service that one has entered the white house Gosh. they're trying to lock it down what is neighbor going to say to eisenhower kill kill the zombie <gasps> what if it's ursula oh no i'm sorry what if ursula's the zombie oh my no, okay, that's we're getting way too. We're getting okay. Back to the original question: zombie apocalypse. Yeah. Niebuhr brought in, and he's to advise Eisenhower what, on the situation. What was what was Niebuhr's critique of the Nixon um, uh, Kissinger ABM policy? Oh my gosh, I don't want to get into that. <laughs> well, he's talking about you know you have to have some sort of defense, mm-hmm. uh, some sort of like uh, uh, what what's the word for it? Um, existential deterrence of some sort. Okay, so we need some existential deterrence yeah. from the zombies. Maybe, maybe just kill it off. I don't know. You gotta, you gotta kill something in order to maybe save your neighbor. Yeah, I think neighbor would say dispatch the, the National Guard, um, get them out in the streets, uh, trying to contain the situation. Um, have a policy of anybody gets bit, you get shot. Can I, can I just jump in here real quick? I just had the craziest idea. Okay. I think what we need is a comic book called um, Reine and Heschel, and they're just like superheroes with capes oh, and nice. baseball bats to fight zombies. Oh, I like that. So maybe yeah. he would like put out the Heschel signal in the sky, and Heschel would come flying in. Oh, and yes. Neighbor would probably get on the airways, dude. He'd probably be channeling his inner um, the symbol in the sky would just be like a cross and a star of David, like overlapping with each other. And the second coming of Christ would come on us. <laughs> All right. I don't think we have that. Uh, maybe that wasn't the best question. 
I tried, you guys. That, that was, was funny. That was funny. Well, I think Niebuhr would obviously be aware. Uh, I don't think he would throw everything out the window and just be like, we just got to kill all the zombies. Mm. I think he would, we have to find the balance of power here. We have to, we have to, we do have to contain the zombies, but it's not worth the social meltdown, mm. you know, um, that could come about. I don't know. I think and I like the question you had, this is the one about, are they people or not? I think that would be the first. Yeah. Well, Niebuhr would probably say, well, I don't know. Gosh, this gets into some troubling territory with Niebuhr. Because his kind of definition of what it means to be human is found in the dialectic of awareness, uh, is basically human awareness. And what do you do with a human that doesn't have human awareness? You know, uh, I don't know, but that gets you into all kinds of other sticky well, yeah. situations, moral questions about who is, what is a human, what is People not. People with dementia and stuff. Right, exactly. Stuff, yeah. I mean, like I said, I think he probably would be hesitant to, to call these things non-human yeah he'd probably just go with the stereotypical you know like the undead probably yeah. just call them the undead he probably wouldn't want to call them zombies to otherize them or demonize right them, of yeah. course of course yeah. he's a, he's a gentleman yeah definitely i think we should probably trim this down a little bit this discussion on zombies zach i'm having fun no i'm keeping all of it <laughs> all right let's go ahead and bring in our guest he is the dean of uh, the School of Mission and Theology at Fuller Theological Seminary, and he also serves as Professor of Theology and Mission there. He has authored or edited close to 50 volumes, including his most recent work, uh, Renewing the Church by the Spirit, and another work that caught my eye wonderfully titled, Can White People Be Saved? Uh, Triangulating Race, Theology, and Mission. Um, sounds very interesting. Uh, well, the answer uh, to that is yes. Oh, yeah. Okay, good, good. <laughs> <laughs> we could rest assured one <laughs> one contribution we here at love thy neighbor are particularly um interested in fond of as he wrote the foreword to the most recent uh recent print of neighbor's nature and destiny of man dr young welcome thank you for inviting me well dr young comes in as an expert in several subfields of theology not least uh his extensive work on pneumatology um specifically what i gathered on uh how the spirit works in intercultural relations and awareness as well but today, Dr. Young uh, graciously came on with us to read and respond to the King's Chapel and the King's Court. So how this is going to work is we've each prepared questions for Dr. Young, um, mostly responding to the article, um, though we do get outside of the article a little bit. And we'll just go in order. Zach will get the first question, then Aaron, then myself, then around and around we go until about a half hour, um, and then our our guest has to go. So Zach, why don't you go ahead and get us started with the first question? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm just dying to know what what, what got you into Niebuhr? Um, and yeah, I should probably, you know, caveat that, uh, you know, you, you guys are the Niebuhr nerds. And so uh, what it means for me to be into Niebuhr may be a bit underwhelming from your perspectives, but I'll say, I'll say a couple things. I mean, obviously, I, well, not maybe so obvious, but yeah, I read Niebuhr as a seminarian, you know, uh, 30 years ago. And at that time, even it was just, in fact, my second master's degree after seminary uh, in a course on United States intellectual history for my history professor at the time. This was, I think, in 1992, I believe. I wrote a paper on Niebuhr's thought. And, um, you know, as a, as a, uh, someone who, you know, made an impact in American 
Yes, as American public theologian, so to speak. And that moniker came to be later on applied to Niebuhr. So this was in the early 90s. Uh, in 2008, I gave the Edward Cadbury lectures at the University of Birmingham on the topic of Pentecostalism and political theology. And uh, as part of that lecture series, and then the book that came out of it. So the book was published under the title, In the Days of Caesar, main title, and subtitle Pentecostalism and Political Theology, published by Erdman's in 2009 or 2010. You can look it up. But there is a section on Niebuhr as well, a, a short section on Niebuhr within the broader landscape of sort of uh, political theologians that uh, uh, had had contributed to, or, or those that had made significant contributions to the discipline or the field that we now call political theology, which I think most of us realize probably wasn't until the last 40 or 50 years that even that nomenclature began to emerge. So, but again, it was uh, not necessarily, again, I read, I read quite a bit of Niebuhr uh, in that, for that paper as a, as a, um, a graduate student. Uh, and then I've continued to go back over the years to engage with Niebuhr. Uh, and then, you know, uh, I published a book with Westminster John Knox. And as they then came out and wanted to do this ongoing uh, Reinhold Niebuhr library with this as the first book in the series, uh, because of part of the work that I had done, they asked me to, to write the, um, uh, to write the forward, which was a real joy. I mean, in the sense that, again, I'm not, I wasn't claiming there more than, more than what I, more than what I knew. I, I certainly haven't spent decades studying Niebuhr in, in that sort of sense. But again, every time I do read him, he strikes me even more and more as I matured myself as a theologian, I think I've matured as a theologian. He strikes me as exactly that, that realist, but yet as one who spoke theologically. And yet, uh, and this is something that I found surprising uh, again, over the years as I engaged with them, and even more, even more in the last, let's say, 10 to 15 years, my own work as a, you know, I'm trained in systematic theology, so a systematic theologian, so to speak. Uh, I guess I could be known as a comparative theologian and a, and a bunch of other uh, qualifiers as well. But in my discipline, there's been a growing realization of how scripture needs to continue to play important roles in whatever we might call the systematic theological enterprise or the, the enterprise of, of theological construction, right? What's, what's the role of scripture? And Niebuhr continues to surprise me as I continue to go back to his work to see the role that the scriptural imagination did play uh, for him as a theologian in the, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s as well. Interesting. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Young. Um, my, my first question for you today is, um, you know, in this article that Niebuhr's written, um, he's quite critical of the Nixon-Graham relationship um, as it marks a kind of turning point in the U.S.'s attitude towards uh, religion, um, at least for Niebuhr. So what effects do you think this relationship um, has had on the U.S.'s attitude towards religion and politics? And, and what examples can you provide and are there any sort of normative sort of um, prescriptions or antidotes if you could like think of on the spot to, to help us with our current situations? So I guess that's the last question you're going to ask me because that's going to take the rest of my time. To ask. <laughs> um, All right. It's a very broad question. I understand. <laughs> I, I actually, I mean, I really appreciate it. You, I mean, of course, you know, it would be Niebuhr nerds that knew about this, uh, the King's Chapel and the King's Court, uh, yeah. which I think, as you have indicated, would have been published in the Christian century in 1969. Yeah. Now, uh, probably very few people up until the last uh, three or four years would have remembered Richard Nixon. But uh, 
as I think we all Americans know in the last uh, you know handful of years, uh, a lot of comparisons have been made to what has happened with the recent Trump administration and what happened in the Nixon administration, right? I mean, the whole Watergate scandal and how that's been compared and contrasted with name the scandal in, in the Trump administration. <laughs> um, and so from that perspective, it was very interesting for me to read someone who's not a Niebuhr nerd, but it was, it was both interesting, but also um, strikingly familiar, right? To see Niebuhr weighing in on uh, at that time, the Graham-Nixon uh, relationship and this was before Watergate, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for for us, you know, historians, I mean, those of us who are closer students of history have been warning us, of, of course, of the ways in which, if you will, uh, the church has struggled with, and particularly evangelical church has struggled with how does it impact? How does it make an impact? How does it make an influence? How does it influence the broader culture? And I think we see Graham here in the in the late 60s, you know, and, um, you know, providing one evangelical model for what does it mean? I, I think that, you know, we can probably assume that that Graham, even by the late 60s, was probably still um, discerning what the best means of engagement was. Right. Hindsight is always 2020. I mean, and we can see certainly that in hindsight, boy, we paid closer attention to this history. Maybe we wouldn't have repeated it in the 80s, 90s, and even more recently. Nevertheless, I mean, I want to give Graham a little bit of credit here, right, from the perspective of saying that if, in fact, I mean, for an evangelical to, to step into this space back in that time, probably also would have been controversial for a set of different reasons than it's controversial now, right? I mean, the the disestablishment clause probably taken by certain groups of conservative Christians in the United States to distance themselves from power. So Graham was already um, uh, at risk, at some risk of, of stepping out in, in sort of unknown territory for a person of his stripes. And of course, yeah, at that level, I mean, we we want we have to be sympathetic at, at you know to great to greater extent, given the tentative nature and character, without historical precedents or exemplars at that point in time. But nevertheless, given what's at stake, uh, we can't have only kid gloves on, right? I mean, so. Graham obviously had to have been uh, even as at, I mean, whenever you launch out into into unknown territory, you you got to take the glory and you got to take the you know if a storm hits and, and the ship breaks into hey it's still your fault right I mean so you can't get away from that kind of of moral responsibility, but yet we can we can um, I think appreciate and and appropriately level the criticisms in hindsight, but yet also in context. And of course, those criticisms and context will need to be mixed with a degree of, of respect for, for what was attempted. So I, I read this and, and I said, and my response initially was, yeah, we need to, you know, evangelicals are not very good students of, of history. Um, uh, we, we have a very short historical memory. And it's for exactly that, same, that reason that I think we have been probably more anemic in being able to respond to the current challenges of our time, because Again, our our recollection doesn't go back far enough for us to have carried the lessons of the past with us, forward with us. And, and I think this article certainly gives us a window into, uh, you know, one side of the Christian century spectrum, engaging with the other side of the Christian spectrum in, in moments of, of course, and again, contextualized, right? Cold War in the 50s, you know, civil rights in the 60s. Here we are in the 70s at a precipice of... Uh, etc. So it's not as if Graham was a neophyte in some respects, 
but it certainly was the case that he was uh, you know, doing some things that other evangelicals weren't doing in the late 60s uh, as well in that mm. particular context. So I've got both that, that appreciation, but also obviously some hindsight to engage with. Do you think it's fair that Niebuhr contrasts Graham and Martin Luther King so starkly? Um, well, yes and no. I mean, you know, um, what's fair? I mean, you know, whose fairness, which justice, which rationality, right? And so I think we can always say that anything that we say can always be further qualified. And when we need to, we further qualify what we're, what we're arguing, right? Uh, and so from, a, from, from that sort of perspective, nothing's ever final. Um, this was this was Niebuhr, one way in which and Niebuhr helped us to name sort of the comparisons and the contrast, right? And so um, I think you can probably find both uh, King folks and Graham folks that would have both agreed and disagreed and or across a spectrum of reactions to that particular comparison. Um, that's the nature of, you know, public theological uh, reflection, uh, commentary, argumentation. But I think the, the tribute, I think, to, to Niebuhr would be that, or, you know, we could say something along the lines that, well, Niebuhr had, of course, certainly also earned a certain right to, um, to make some of these assessments at this point in his life, right? Mm -hmm. Which is not to say, obviously, still, that uh, everything, you know, just, we just kowtow before somebody just because they've got 30 years in, 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 the, in the hood, right? So the question, I think, would be, that yeah, we, we take what Niebuhr has said in this context against the broad scope of his claims that he's made over 30 to 40 years. And here's where you Niebuhr nerds would be in a better position to maybe even comment on to what degree was this consistent with, to what degree did, did this maybe even um, extend and deepen some Niebuhrian um, you know, trajectories of argumentation over the decades, or you might even say, well, they, 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 this might have been something a little novel here. Um, I, I'm not that kind of a Niebuhr scholar. So I'm not able to comment on sort of a particular article within the broad scope of the of the work that he has accomplished. But my guess would be that you take you take three Niebuhr scholars, you ask them the same question, and they'll have a range of responses about exactly how True. consistent this was with what Niebuhr was saying over 30 years. But he'd earned the right to say it. Exactly. Well, I guess this was supposed to be the closing question, but I'll just put it in there in the middle. I'm so curious. I really want to ask. Uh, in reading your forward to Nature and Destiny, man, like that's the place where I really knew I wanted to reach out to you. You have this really good line. You say, rereading Niebuhr will provide both strategies for discerning our times and resources for retrieving scripture and theological tradition in our varied global context. Upon like reading this article, The King's Chapel and the King's Court, do you get, like in what ways do you see it helping us discern our times? Is it a resource for retrieving scripture and the theological, uh, the very theological traditions of our global context? Yeah, I appreciate the question. I mean, and so, you know, it, I, I really appreciate also this opportunity to sort of dive a little deeper into a couple comments I made, you know, sort of in response to the first question, because I do think that particularly for us in the evangelical tradition, uh, at a fundamental level, um, our arguments will need to be made biblically or scripturally right and uh even but having even said that i think we all know that any one of us can bend scripture to support whatever it is that our agenda might be right and so there there is a a hubris and in fact Niebuhr talks about it in in these gifford lectures as well about about how we become blind to our own passions and in that respect 
uh, those passions begin to dictate our the warrants or our own critical consciousness about how we justify right uh, whatever it is that we may what whatever it is that we may um, want to accomplish. So I think that um, for here's where again I found Niebuhr both in his book and his work uh, again uh, historically as I've become come to even greater appreciate, but and also in this essay that you pointed out to, in which he engages with the prophet Amos. And here's the way I would characterize it, right? That that the, um, um, I think Niebuhr helps to resource us by inviting us to the broader scope, the arc of the biblical story. Um, the engagement with Amos is, if you will not, Proof, not proof texting. He's not just picking out a couple of verses here and there and then making his point. That I think has, for good or worse, uh, become one of the Achilles heel of a lot of our contemporary, quote unquote, evangelical readings of the Bible, right? We, we tend to take, you know, our favorite verse and that becomes, you know, the Holy Spirit's justification for what God is calling me to do in this particular context, whatever that is. Whereas the reading of Amos, I think, against the broad arc of Amos's life and the letter of Amos in its context, against the broader context of the prophetic tradition of ancient Israel, uh, these are, I think, um, virtues, interpretive virtues, and even scriptural attentive virtues that we can never be an oversupply of, right? We, we need to continue to cultivate these reading habits that and not just habits, but instincts and sensibilities, interpretive skills and competencies even of following the arc of scripture and being able to locate any particular phrase or clause or, or verse within its appropriate context. And then here's the beautiful thing. Um, I find that, yeah, actually, even when we've put scripture in its context or attempted to understand the prophet Amos in his context, um, it does open up all kinds of uh, challenging windows into our own lives, into our own, into our own political realities, into our own economic realities. You know, um, I think that uh, a lot of our pietistic evangelical hermeneutics is solely concerned with how God is saving our souls. And I'm not saying that God isn't concerned with saving our souls, but God is concerned with saving the souls of people that are embodied and living in history and time and space amidst a certain political regime, amidst a certain economic set of circumstances, amidst a, bit, a, a, a certain social and class set of realities, amidst a certain racial and ethnic set of realities. And in fact, once we actually get into the context of ancient Israel, and actually even into the context of the apostolic narratives of the first century ecclesia around the Mediterranean world, operative within what at that time historians call the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. We start to actually see that, that what the apostles and the earliest disciples and even the prophets of ancient Israel and the poets of ancient Israel, they were, they were telling, they were bearing witness to the redemptive work of God amidst fraught political, social, economic, ethnic, uh, you know, um, uh, by ethnic, I mean, even, wars between Assyrians and Babylonians and Medo-Persians and ancient Israel. I mean, it's, it's these multi, you call it intersectionally layered uh, historical realities. And all of a sudden scripture begins to speak to us souls 
that are embodied in space and time amidst these kinds of circumstances. So I think for me, that's what makes Niebuhr such still an intriguing resource, right? Mm -hmm. He is addressing issues of political, social, and economic uh, and other realities of the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. But he's doing it with an attentiveness to the scriptural message that helps us to appreciate how the ancient prophets and the laments of the psalmists and the historical narratives uh, of ancient Israel were already always already fraught with an agenda, mm -hmm. an agenda that was dictated in some respects by, by the circumstances, political and otherwise, of their times, as they attempted to, be, to listen to Yahweh. Uh, as they attempted to listen to the God of Jesus Christ, so so it's in that respect again that I that I found Niebuhr to be again a a an intriguing uh, reader of the Bible, anticipating a lot of what in today's uh, climate in the academy is called theological interpretation of scripture. How do we read scripture theologically from from the standpoint of faith? So yeah, so um, your your just comment a moment ago about spirits and bodies makes me want to what, just skip my second question and jump to my third. Um, so, um, you know, Niebuhr describes a, a, a big moral dilemma for Graham, which I think is very, very relevant today. Um, you kind of touched upon it a bit. So he, he, Niebuhr's criticism of Graham is like he's too one-dimensional in believing that social issues can be solved by individual conversion. Um, and as Niebuhr makes clear, this thinking leads Graham to believe conversion empowers individuals. Um, in the context of uh, Jim Crow, to put aside race and become blind to color, you know, leaving aside all the economic policies and coercion and violent practices that uh, the people of color were uh, subjected to. Um, so my question is for today, you know, what material and spiritual conditions maintain this one dimensional view of our problem? And what ways do you think that the American conscience could be awakened to the structural realities on the one hand and the lack of our virtues on the other hand? Um, I mean, the first thing I'll say about, about Niebuhr specifically, you know, um, I think Niebuhr had a lot of insights on these matters. Uh, he yep. was certainly, you know, from moral man and moral society onward, he was always already attuned to the structural dimensions of, of the human condition and how uh, they were layered with, you know, what we might call uh, the the sins the depravities uh, the you know the uh, we would call the prejudices of of the human uh, of the human condition um, on on the flip side of it and here's interesting you know I would I'd, I'd love to hear you guys Niebuhr nerds talk about to what degree was Niebuhr himself aware of his own privilege um, yeah. to what degree was you know his writings reflect an awareness of of his own you know um, What's the what's the complicity, so to speak, right? I mean, so it's one thing to name the systems and structures, and and I think that's really one of the biggest challenges for for us academics. I mean, for me, I'll speak to myself. You know, um, I'm a you know a tenured professor, a senior administrator at a major seminary. I've got lots of privileges, and and um, that's always for me. It comes back to then a question of of how do I steward those privileges in ways that um, in too much has been given, much will be required. So, so that's a that's an interesting historical question that I, I hope at some point one of you guys will help us to appreciate a little deeper. Is to what degree Niebuhr himself grappled with these sorts of issues at a, at this personal level? But to get to your question, I think that the main issue has to do with con the continued structural segregation that allows still homogeneous living communities, more or less, 
to be isolated from the pain points of people who are navigating life circumstances from a very different ethnic, historical, economic, social, cultural uh, uh, trajectory, right? So our country has enabled us to build communities and ways of life that are segregated. And I know we're not talking about Jim Crow, but this is a long time after that. But nevertheless, and even some of our theological imagination imagination has been so structured. I mean, I'll name it here, you know, and, and this might be my last couple of points here because I've got to get going. But, um, you know, Fuller Theological Seminary in the 70s, right after Niebuhr wrote his last article, he passed away in 71, I believe. Um, we had a school of world mission at the time that promulgated uh, what was called the homogeneous unit principle uh, of planning churches in let's say migrant and immigrant communities uh, for those that came from certain parts of the world who spoke certain dialects or languages in order for us to have a more effective missional and ministry imagination and practice for these immigrant communities. So again, 1970s, think about after 1965, um, the US immigration laws opened up you know, opportunity for immigration from across the Pacific Rim and across Asia to the United States and the Vietnam War. So we had a lot of other cultural groups begin to quote unquote, move in. And homogeneous unit principle was uh, developed in the seventies to how do we, how do we um, effectively minister, uh, evangelize and, and build and plant churches and build ecclesial communities amongst these immigrant ethnic enclaves at that time. And that was the reality, right? So, uh, you know, the Hmong community in Minneapolis would have had their own neighborhood and, and then multiply that out across the country. Uh, and so from a missiological perspective, I think at the time, it was not a bad idea, right? But it kept the whites as the host, host and it kept these ethnic enclaves as the guests. Um, and it allowed only, it, that, that arrangement only allowed certain kinds of structural interactions to occur with regard to... The host welcoming church and the immigrant churches. And that's now a 50-year history. The homogeneous unit principle has come under some severe criticism, even here at Fuller Seminary, over the last four decades. Much of it's just, just and some of it a bit unjust in terms of not, not understanding the times. So here's my point, right? Um, the way in which we structure our lives insulates us from having the kinds of koinonia that, that actually opens up our, our, our hearts and our minds to the realities that other people have to live with. And as long as we can isolate ourselves from those realities, then we can continue to objectify them and otherize them and their threats, as opposed to recognizing that we're all part of the one people of God uh, called for many nations, tongues, tribes, and languages uh, to sit before the throne. Dr. Amos Young, I wanna thank you for uh, giving us uh, your time and uh, we appreciate it. We'd, we'd love to, to talk to you again someday in the future. Thanks for your time, fellas. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. Thanks to everybody for listening. We want to thank again our guest, uh, Dr. Amos Young. Uh, make sure you uh, check out his bio, check out his books that, that he's uh, published. Um, and uh, make sure you give us a follow on Twitter at Love Thy Neighbor all kinds of news and updates like and subscribe write us a good review that about does it all right everybody take care and stay safe out there